G'day. Once again, welcome back to the podcast. Today is Thursday, 29th of August, 1946, and, as we'll hear, it's still bloody hot in Changxi. In today's episode, Bet entertains us with tales of several local road trips and the perils and challenges of driving in 1946 China. Of course, she regales us with other curiosities too. I don't know about you, but in the last few letters, I've noticed a distinct change in Bet's tone, in her descriptions and storytelling. There is a colour, a lightness and emerging sense of humour which is shining through her accounts of various predicaments, observations and daily adventures. There seems little doubt that her new romance with Hank is fast dissolving the cloak of grief and loss which bound her so horribly when she left Sydney. There's a joy and brightness evident. Life is good. Before we hear today's missive from Nan Chang, we'll hear a little more from The Story of Unra. You'll recall the last chapter spoke of the massive efforts being made to restore agricultural production in the devastated and war-weary lands. Today, we'll begin learning of the efforts being made to begin industrial rehabilitation. Chapter 19. Up from Zero. Unra's industrial rehabilitation program had to start almost from zero. What was not worn out was wrecked. Ports were partly or wholly unfit for handling ships or cargoes. Roadsteads spawned floating miles and miles of dock had vanished, together with cranes and all the other paraphernalia for loading and unloading. Whole cities were without water, lights, sewage disposal or communications. Bridges were out, roads were bomb-pocked and railroads a shambles of twisted metal. Europe's power potential had fallen to a 19th century level. The main purposes of UNRWA's rehabilitation efforts, all aimed at self-help, were three. To get enough of the wheels of transportation turning again so relief supplies could be delivered to all parts of a country. To provide coal and, to a lesser extent, gasoline and lubricants to power transport, public utilities and key industries. And to send in material and equipment for those industries so they could begin to produce some of the goods the people needed. Industrial rehabilitation was the largest UNRWA program in tonnage, the second largest in dollar value, and represented an about-face from post-World War I planning when boatload after boatload of finished goods was poured into Europe, draining off its foreign exchange. These were some of its high spots. All types of vehicles, freight cars, locomotives and barges, together with spare parts and fuel, bought promptly from the military at the end of the war and actually in use during that critical winter of 1945-46. Thousands of others arrived later to make a grand total of 660 locomotives, 12,000 freight cars and 83,000 trucks. Water, sewage and gas systems repaired in time to be a strong right arm in the battle against epidemics. The lights turned on in some shattered towns for the first time in many, many years. Heavy industry humming again with UNRWA lathes, milling machines, pneumatic tools and raw materials. Coal, 
the keystone of European recovery now coming out of Polish and Czechoslovakian pits in large enough quantities for export, pits put in running order again with UNRWA machinery. Enough baled raw cotton turning on the spindles of repaired textile mills in Europe and China to make two and a half billion yards of goods. And though basic economies were by no means restored in any receiving country, communications and vital industries are now meeting some of the most essential requirements. We'll resume the story of UNRWA in further episodes. Mrs. Betty Suter, UNRWA Regional Office, Nanchang, Changxi, China, 29th of August 1946. How boo how. In two days' time, I'll be heading for the famous mountain, Kuling. The rendezvous in oppressive Chinese summer of all the diplomats, the big shots, and even the Generalissimo himself. It will be such a delight to know the caresses of a cool breeze, to be free from the persistent rivers of sweat, day after day, to lose for a brief time at least the itchy, prickling torture of the heat rash. Yes, I am really going to enjoy my week in the hills. Before I go, I must write to you of the things that may be forgotten when I have the glory of the mountain to write about. There are some little things that I have often intended to mention, but, for one reason or another, have eluded me at the time of writing. May they occur to me this time while I tell you of some of the more recent events here. Last Saturday morning, a party of three women and one man set off in a jeep for cooling. From Nanchang, there is a 121-mile ride to Chang, and then a further 15 miles to the foot of the mountain. The women were starting on their week's leave. The man was on a business bent at Q Chang. He was driving. It appears that the first tyre blew out on this side of the ferry, about 40 miles from Nanchang. Change affected. Ferry crossed. Second tyre blew out about 20 miles the other side of the ferry. No spare. No equipment to patch. Third tyre gradually deflating also. Middle of China. What to do? It appears that a Sunra truck came by about three hours later, heading for Nanchang, whereupon the girls all piled together with the two bad tyres, leaving Lush in the jeep with all the luggage, etc., and the rear of the jeep all jacked up. In the meantime, Lush had sounded all possibilities and found the position bad, but he did get for himself an armed guard from a Chinese army encampment nearby. Bandits have been causing trouble along this road lately, and so the guard was given for protection. No one so far had been able to speak English, but they got the general idea of each other's positions, and so Lush was left. The girls arrived back here, much to our surprise, quite late at night, and work commenced on the poor tyres. The next day, I entered the story. Hank was the only volunteer to come to Lush's rescue, so I volunteered to accompany him. We took the three girls and a couple of good tyres and set out on the journey. 
It was a filthy hot day. First incident was the entry of a wasp or gnat or some such through the open windshield on to Betty Mavis. The so-and-so animal left a great sting in my neck before he whipped out again. I felt quite miserable for half an hour or so, but the show must go on. In due course, we crossed the ferry and found Lush. He still had a guard of eight soldiers around him, but we were amused to find that they got scared at dusk and had left him through the night to face his dangers, if any, alone. He experienced no dangers other than the fiercest of fierce mosquitoes. We got his tyres on for him, ate some hot spam sandwiches and boiled eggs, took a swig of water and turned back on the road again. When you next take a pleasant Sunday drive, think of me, please. Way out in the heat and dust, having a Sunday drive myself. My companion could not be improved on, but there was nothing else enjoyable or romantic about it at all. We were unlucky enough to have come against seven trucks at intervals which we had to pass. The clouds of dust, dirt and stones were terrific. The roads are shocking and, for the most part, narrow. Either the truck drivers cannot hear the sound of a horn behind them or else they are obstinate and simply refuse to move over and let you pass. The idea, therefore, is to look for your opening and then take your life and your Jeep into your hands and tear alongside while there is something there to stop you from falling over the edge. Just a matter of manoeuvres. The second truck that we had to pass was the worst offender. After a few minutes of the choking dust, we let down the windshield, and only just in time too, the truck ahead kicked up a large stone just at the critical moment, and it landed right in front of Hank's face, shattering the windshield, which fortunately held together and did not let loose any splinters. I just hate to think what might have happened if we had lost another minute in getting the shield down. But that is all in the game too. It was a long drive, about 150 miles in all. We got home dirty and tired at 4pm, and I had just emerged from a bath when in came a great batch of letters. The day was full of enjoyment after all. The road signs in China intrigue me. They are in English for the benefit of foreign friends. We are the only ones who have any transportation out here anyway. We never see the word danger. Instead, we are confronted with the notice, alarming. So often, I have looked beyond the sign and found nothing to get worried about. There is only one danger spot on the Ku Chang Road, a really sharp and blind hairpin bend. Guess what they have there to warn you? The answer? Nothing. Typical China. One day last week, I went out on an exploratory trip about 30 miles from here. We were testing an untried road, a shortcut to Qi'an. The shortcut was suggested for a convoy carrying the Rinder pest vaccines to affected areas around Qi'an because the vaccines had to be kept on ice all the way and it is no small task to keep ice on these long roads in this climate. This time, I stowed into the jeep with Keith Kestevan and Dr. Reinsinger, the two agricultural men, and Hank, who is the highway traffic advisor. We also took along an interpreter. It was quite an enjoyable trip, in spite of the usual bad roads. We were informed that the road was impassable. The Chinese have no knowledge of what a jeep can do, and that two bridges were out of commission. 
We satisfied ourselves that the convoy could get through and that the road was only difficult and that the bridges were okay. You would have laughed to see the three men climbing out and over and under the bridges and popping their heads up at intervals, saying, Okay here, how's yours? I got over and had a look too. After checking the second bridge and going a few lee beyond, we came to a village where there was a highway road office. We were invited in for a rest and took the opportunity of having our lunch under the shelter. Inevitable spam sandwiches, hard-boiled eggs and canned beer. The magistrate came toddling over and had a few words and made the usual requests, through the interpreter of course, for bigger and better relief supplies. The usual crowd foregathered, hundreds of them, pointing at me and giggling their silly heads off. I became most popular when I said, How boo how? Show Heidza to a dear little kid and tried to take his photo. They must have thought that I knew some more of their lingo and started bombarding me with chatter. It was really funny. Last Tuesday, China celebrated the birthday of Confucius. We decided to have a holiday too. I had work to do, so I exempted myself from the holiday. It was a pity, really, because I heard many weird sounds during the course of the day, and I gathered that there were great things going on in town. Never mind. There will be other days and other sights. We had a sudden rainstorm last night and hoped that the hot weather had broken. It hasn't. But we are now short two trees. The sudden onslaught of cold rain was apparently more than the big tree could stand. It snapped with a sharp rendering report, dragging down with it another tree alongside. Great excitement among the houseboys. The fallen trees were only across the lawn, but there was still plenty of reason for the boys to chatter and babble as if the very house had fallen. You did never hear such a din. The rain was wonderful while it lasted. It stopped as suddenly as it had started. Last night, I was going to be a big, brave girl and sleep without mosquito nets. I will have you know that I do not use mosquito nets to keep out the mosquitoes. Oh, no. They are to keep out the rats. Well, I was thinking how much cooler and nicer it was and thinking that I had not heard any rats about for a while when along came Eustace, the fattest of them all, and right onto the head of my bed. No, I will never, never, never get used to rats. Even Eustace, who is quite on familiar terms now. Of course, I let down the nets again, wouldn't you? And I think that I'll be using them all winter unless conditions improve. Oh dear. Lotha has just come in to clean the office and, as he's very late anyway, I think that I had better get out and let him get on with the job. His name is not really Lotha, of course, but Lou. He is a brawny boy who does the heavy work about the place. He even talks a little like Lotha would talk too. And so, since I did not expect to have time to spare tomorrow, I suppose I'd better conclude. I will be able to add a few personal words at the bottom of this page to each one of you. As far as the circular is concerned, cheerio to you all. Daddy dear, three lovely letters from you in the last mail. They were the air letters of the 6th and the 12th of August. The one of the 7th of July only arrived the previous week. Doesn't make much difference, really, whether you address them to Shanghai or Nanchang. Maybe vary them, yes? I certainly am receiving masses of letters now and loving them all. Glad you enjoy the news from this end. Sometimes I wish that the hours would pass more slowly. 
for I really am keen to write more articles. But the days fly away and I'm no further advanced in that regard. Every spare moment is spent on letters. You didn't say what Bill Taylor's little note was. He really is a dear and seems to have taken it on himself, the responsibility of keeping track of me. I get a letter from him about every 10 or 14 days and he does any little jobs for me in Shanghai that want doing. He's on the warpath about my luggage just now. Production credits for this episode, produced and narrated by Warren Henry, the voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn, and the featured tune this episode made it to number one on the US charts, Symphony, by Joe Stafford with Paul Weston and his orchestra. softly done.